Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Female Political Strategy Podcast. I'm Ro. And I'm Lilith. And I'm Elle. You may recognize Lilith and I's voice from the Female Dating Strategy Podcast, which we launched in March 2021. If you're already familiar with it, Thank you for your continued support of FDS and its spinoffs. If not, after you finish listening to this, you might want to familiarize yourself with the meanest female-only podcast on the internet. Check the links below. Now, you may be wondering, why do a politics-focused podcast? Well, Lilith and I had been doing the FDS podcast for months, and we realized we had a lot more things we'd like to talk about, a lot more social and political pressures on women that we'd like to examine, a lot more guests we'd like to interview that were really outside the scope of things we would normally discuss on the FDS podcast, which is pretty centrally focused on sex and dating. We were making our short list of people we'd love to talk to, and it seemed wildly inappropriate to ask someone like Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Hey girl, how's your dating life going? While I'm sure they have absolutely stellar insight, clearly that is a waste of their particular expertise. By launching this FPS podcast, Female Political Strategy, we're creating an opportunity to really expand the scope of discussion and dissect some of the social and political drivers that have a material effect on women's lives, and to call out some of the key players, including lead scholars, scientists, politicians, and of course, the mainstream media. So with this in mind, let's answer the question in a little bit more detail, why the female political strategy? Why did everyone want to be involved in it? Should I start or? Yeah. Okay. So um, I love talking about politics and a lot of it was outside of the scope of FDS. I'm a progressive. I would consider myself a democratic socialist. And these past few years, I've just been feeling really betrayed by the men within my own party. I did it both progressive and conservative guys, and both of them seem to have an equal proportion of scrotes. <laughs> and ultimately, both the left and the right, I find men in those camps use whatever political belief to get access, like sexual access to women. I just think we need to be more female focused in our politics. Unless you're actually specifically focusing on the needs of female people, it's always going to be an afterthought and we're just going to keep getting fucked over by the men in our particular group. All right, Elle, so you're up next, friend of the pod. Hey, everybody. Um, I'm, I'm Elle. And uh, if you have no idea who I am, good. No, I'm kidding. Go check out the other episode that I was on on the female dating strategy and then please don't just stick with that. I have a lot more to say. I'm excited to be in this conversation. And it's an awesome opportunity, especially as a woman um, in this day and age with, you know, the political environment right now as it is, especially being an American and a person of color and a woman, m- most importantly. If you didn't know, I'm conservative and it's kind of hard to have the political conversations, political discourse. It makes friendships difficult. It makes relationships difficult. So I think being able to have a clear conversation with people that are listening to you for who you are is really what draws me to this. I have a background, um, an academic background in politics. I have my degree in political science. I work in the national security environment. Naturally, I can't go into further details about it. I support the Department of Defense, Department of State, and um, policy advising. I guess that's how you could best describe my role. I am a veteran, so I've seen our national security policies, American national security policies at play in many places across the globe. And a lot of them from both my age, only from the conservative perspective and a little bit of the Obama era policies as if they played out in the world. So it's it's interesting because... I don't really get to have the large scale macro level conversations that I would like to have with too many people. I think a lot of people are just engrossed with what they see on TV and what we're told is important. You know, the hot button issues that people come 
to think of, which is LGBTQ, abortion, gun rights, which are all important to me, but I'd love to have just a different nuanced conversation, which is what I'm excited to talk to you guys and everyone in the audience about. So for those of you who've listened to the Female Dating Strategy podcast, I've talked a little bit about my background. I'm a person who grew up very poor. I was raised by a single mother. I was also very mired in Christian conservative culture. I was able to pull myself up by my bootstraps, go to school, eventually got a master's degree, then worked and became a white collar professional. As I changed in both my economic background, a lot of my politics also changed. As a person who's pretty much been left my entire life, but who at first was more on the culture issues, maybe more moderate, one of the things that inspired me to push for more progressive policies, at least when it came to social policies, was the arguments of LGBTQ rights, which was very prominent. Um, I'm millennial, so that was very prominent um, when I was coming up in school. And as a person who was a supporter of gay rights, I felt that the culture that I grew up in didn't feel like it was open-minded enough or open to embracing these progressive cultural issues. But as I started to run in progressive cultural circles, I often found that there was some ignorance as well when it came to how people in the working class experience life and the things that they find important or the types of things that actually impact them. Some of the more obvious places that we talk about in FDS is often about how liberal feminism privileges a certain type of woman. And the concept of sexual empowerment is often focused on predominantly middle to upper class white women. And that for women who don't enjoy this kinds of privilege, sometimes the policies that they push can be really harmful. And so in response to that, you often see women who are in working class or below espouse more culturally conservative values. So for me, it became really, really important to bridge the gap in my understanding between how do people expect feminism to look like for women who are working class. There's often this perception that working class women, if they don't vote democratic or if they don't espouse the values that are often pushed in liberal feminism, that they're one, not feminist, or that they don't believe in equality between men and women, or that they are somehow backwards and ignorant. And that's just not always the case. I really felt that there's a certain level of ignorance and prejudice coming from people who have always lived fairly privileged lives, and that that can be educationally privileged, that can be racially privileged, et cetera, towards people who don't. And so I'm really inspired in this podcast because I really want to be able to parse out what does feminism look like for working class women? The women that I grew up with, most of them work gendered labor, including the women in my family. My grandmother was a maid, she worked as a nanny, and she did professions that are often 90% female. And professions that are 90% female are often paid less than professions that are traditionally blue-collar work for men, which because they're more dangerous, get paid more, which creates a dependency among working class women on men. So their feminism doesn't necessarily look like liberal feminism where it's strictly gender neutral. Or even radical feminism. Yeah, true. Or radical feminism, meaning their version of gender neutrality seems to rely really heavily on white collar work. So what inspires me to do this podcast is to really, really talk about the perception differences that are going on between the working class women that I grew up with that often cause them to vote conservative and also talk to women who I guess would now be more or less my peers because of my educational background and talk to them and bridge the gap in understanding between these two courts of women and start to kind of laser out and maybe carve out with a scalpel more female-friendly policies that make sense between these two cohorts of women. Because I think often, like Lilla said previously, men are setting the narrative at the top. We are often pressured as women into false choices and false binaries based on men forcing us to make trade-offs on whether we want certain types of equality or if we want economic stability. And 
we just don't have to do that. Much like much like female dating strategy does a lot of myth bustings about these false binaries we've been trapped into when it comes to our sex and dating lives with men. We believe there's room to examine that from the political space. So that's my hope with this podcast to really hone in on those ideas, really go through and just create a cohesive female first narrative, looking at it from multiple angles. Basically, we wanted to take the idea of FDS of maximizing female benefit in the dating world, and we wanted to apply that to the political realm. If we want to materially improve the lives of all women, we need to get political in order to do that. A hundred percent. All decisions are made in the political realm. And Lilith, just to kind of add and amplify what you said from a conservative perspective, I think the first image that comes to mind when people think of a conservative is an old white guy that resembles Mitch McConnell. (laughs) Honestly, when you say Republican man, I immediately imagine Mitch McConnell. (laughs) Everybody does. Even I do. Am I the only one who thinks of Mitt Romney? No, actually... I wish more people thought of Mitt Romney because I actually really like him. But what I actually really wanted to do in this podcast is bring the face of like the silent conservatives, which is people like me. Because like I said, people think of an old white guy who's probably very Christian. I, for one, I was born overseas. I'm actually a naturalized U.S. citizen. I'm a veteran. I'm a woman. I have left leaning and left sympathetic or left adjacent views. And a lot of us do exist. Actually, more of us exist, especially amongst this like millennial generation of conservatives than not. I think we've been wedged out of the conversation by the mainstream media. Yeah, I'd really like to amplify the voices of like non-crazy conservatives. Like right now, it's like both on the right and the left, there's crazy people holding the microphone, right? Twitter politics and Twitter activists have really, really ruined the conversation. Because it amplifies the most extreme views. It, It amplifies the most extreme views, but it's also distraction from a lot of the more complex issues because because basically people have been trained via the 280 characters you have on Twitter to always look for the most controversial takes. I mean, it's one thing if it's like a vibe, but like, I really don't think the purveyors of information, like the news, right, where they've kind of established themselves to be the trusted source. And then they're over here giving us commentary and not information. Yeah, the trust of the mainstream media is at an all-time low. The other thing I wanted to add is that women tend to identify more closely with men from their own respective social, racial, religious, and so on background. And I really hope that this podcast is almost like a consciousness-raising effort for women as a political class and not having women divided into all these different subgroups that ultimately all oppress women in their own way. Yeah. And not to say an oft repeated buzzword, but this is where the concept of quote unquote intersectionality comes to play, where often the reason why women can seem so politically polarized and how and why we've never been able to push forward policies that exclusively benefit us, and that should honestly come from a bipartisan effort, is because men force us to make trade-offs, right? All of us are trying to balance the things that we actually need as women with the dependency we may have on men from our specific geographic, cultural, racial background. So the purpose of female political strategy is like, what would it look like if we truly united on certain issues as a class and then ignored the binaries and that men try to push. I agree, because right now the narrative is owned and controlled by men and women just merely hang out. We're just, you know, invited to just sit at the table. We don't really have a table of our own to have our own discussion. Or not even that. We're supposed to lean in. 
And then if you sit at that table, you got to kick the legs out from all the other women at the other tables in order to sit at that table. But sometimes men don't even give us a seat at the table. And if they do, it's like a little kitty table. So that's why we need to become a force to be reckoned with. So why do we need to depend on them? Breeding, um, what is it? Queen bee syndrome. And then like, why are we asking men for a seat? Who let them, like, is it their table? Yeah, we need to build our own fucking table. I think that's the problem is that because women were forced out of the political sphere for much of the history, now we've been pigeonholed into these specific archetypes where it's always this us versus them mentality between different cohorts of women. And that prevents us from ever actually focusing on policies that will benefit us as a social class. And the other thing is, too, is that there are people who are invested, even among women, and we'll go into political pick and quote-unquote pack mishas I think, on later shows. But there are women who are at the top stoking the flames of division because they individually benefit. So I think part of the work of this podcast, too, is to call out when women are being equally as divisive. Sometimes liberal feminism can come across as absolutely contemptuous of working class women, or at least at best dismissive. Also, I just want to reassure our audience, Elle, one of the things I like about her, she's not like other conservatives. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a progressive, but I'm not like other progressives. She's a conservative. She's not like other conservatives. We're a space for politically homeless women. (laughs) Like in, In case you guys didn't know, contrary to my customer service voice i am black just just putting that out there like literally from the continent yeah i think everyone just assumed like a blonde you know white supremacist like fox news anchor looking type of woman nah they're the first that wanted to deport me i was legit scared of getting deported for a while there so don't worry i almost don't see this podcast as bipartisan i see it as nonpartisan because i essentially see myself as a woman first and my political party second. And so if my political party is advocating for something that goes against women's interests, I'm going to be opposed to that. So I don't like how, especially in a two party, I mean, in Canada, we have like five parties, so we have more choices, but in a two party system, you're often forced to side with a platform where you may not agree with everything. And often where they both fall short to me is how they serve women. Yeah. That's kind of the open secret of women of both sides that a lot of times we end up having to defend either explicitly or implicitly this growth in our party because of the fact that there's so many other issues that we want to focus on in addition to being female that we are often forced to ignore when they are less than savory characters. Scrotery, including things like sexual harassment, sexual assault, is truly a bipartisan scrot issue. People have this idea of leftist or feminist men as good and progressive. In my experience, a lot of them have just been fucking sex offenders. I think what ended up happening is we've both been psyoped into believing that the men on our side have our back. It's a divide and conquer strategy. Think the scramble for Africa, except like scramble for colonizing women's minds and making sure we're never looking out for our own political interests. And yet we don't really have any major seats at the table. So yeah, the purpose of FPS is so we can push forward on female first ideas without the partisan baggage. Female first and female forward. We just need to like be like, fuck men. (laughs) Yeah. And start talking to them. Be like, fuck, but not don't actually don't fuck them. But yeah. like uh, sex strike. Like f- fuck carefully. Yeah, fuck carefully and deliberately. Yeah. And only with men who make you happy and, and so on who commit to you. But my point being that 
We cannot rely on men to have our best interests at heart. We need to form allegiances with other women, even if those women believe differently than us and form a female-led coalition. In a way, especially if women believe differently than us, right? Because at that point, we're alienating each other and they are the ones that are going to be used as attack dogs for anything that the men don't want to say directly to us. It's number one psyop. It needs to come from a mouth like yours, like somebody who looks like you. Right. So in a way, we do need to band together, especially especially when we have distinctly opposing views and be open to growth and either having a stronger grounding in your own opinions or learning something new. So that, I mean, you just summed up perfectly the point of this podcast. There was some controversy, obviously, when we started looking for a conservative host. And I'm really glad we found Elle because at the time we were worried that we would not be able to find someone who was had the perfect mix of being uh, culturally plugged into conservative politics, meaning understanding the culture in which a lot of the conservative ideas arise, which Elle, having a military background, has some experience with that. So we were really happy to find someone like Elle who had those qualities. And so then you can give some insight about how women on this side of the aisle feel about certain issues and how they prioritize those certain issues so that we can figure out where the common grounds are, where the, where the common ground is with leftist women. And also like just understand the pressures that they're actually up against instead of just creating like a straw man or a boogeyman on, uh, on that side. Because like we said already, when we do that, it's men that win. Oh, thank you, by the way. I'll even venture to say, and I say this is truly an immigrant to the United States, to the first world, that it is an actual luxury to have a culture war. Uh, It is. It is. As opposed to a real war or a civil war. (laughs) Yeah. Everything in your life is so good. Like, I was very young. I was below the age of 10 and I saw a bullet fly past my mom's head and lodge into a wall. And I thought it was a rock. Right. That's the reality children are living in in this world today. Young girl. I was a young girl. I did not need to see that. Right. And it was a consequence of men at war and making life miserable for women. So if the peak of your misery is that someone got your made up pronoun wrong, like I envy you at this point. I mean, it's it's very much a argument and an ethos that's coming out of academia. So you're already dealing with a minority of the population. A minority of the population is college educated and they've decided to make this the topic du jour of feminism and leaving out the vast majority of women for whom, like quite frankly, for whom have other priorities. Yes. (laughs) My hope and just purpose with this podcast is to find out what does feminism look like for the working class? What's been really, really frustrating as a person, I am also a child of immigrants. It's been really uh, frustrating to see is how much liberal feminism and their vision of gender equality relies on white collar work and uh, them outsourcing gendered work to the working class. And then having this kind of nasty disdain for women of the working class for not having more progressive politics. But there's no clear vision of how they expect to create gender equality for a large percentage of women who do gendered work. For example, you know, For every uh, Sheryl Sandberg who works for Facebook, you know, she has a nanny or a hairstylist or someone who does her manicures and pedicures or who cleans her house. Those are all women. Those are gendered jobs. What does gender equality look like for them? Like meaning, meaning when I say gender jobs, it means that like 80, 90% of the workforce is female. And a lot of those jobs don't pay enough for these women to be completely independent. And a lot of times these women are 
dependent on the men in their lives, right? Meaning like they might have a husband or a guy that works with them who works in construction or works on an oil rig or something like that. So when we're talking about gender equality, what exactly does that look like for the working class practically? I I don't like how they've just completely decided that everyone that doesn't like for like, first of all, like understand the usage of pronouns, again, like a academic concept that's just not accessible to a lot of women, quite frankly, like they're, they're going to be more or less confused about why this is important. Like Latinx. Yeah. Latinx. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Latinx. You know, it's frustrating because I'm looking at, you know, my grandmother and she cleaned houses and she cared for the elderly and she was a nanny. She came from this country and she worked in those kinds of jobs and they have a very, you know, she had a very traditional marriage with my grandfather till he passed away and people pointing at her like, you're not, you know, you're not progressive enough, et cetera, et cetera. Like having this attitude, like if you don't understand gender equality or like you want to have a marriage or, or understand like how to have these, like, you know, my partner, my, my significant other use all these like woke buzzwords to refer to your marriage. Then you must be some kind of regressive conservative who like, likes oppression and doesn't, is stupid and doesn't understand gender equality. It's just, it's just, there's no practical application of liberal feminism for the working class. So what I really, really want to talk about, and I really, really want to hone on is like a personal issue for me is like, I want a feminism that makes women like that. I want their lives to be materially better. I want feminism to focus on things that make working class women's lives materially better. You can't, completely lock them out of the conversation to focus on all these like intellectual thought bubbles and then be disdainful when they don't vote the way you feel like they should vote. It's like, have you offered them anything practical that makes them feel like feminism is for them? I don't see it personally. I don't see anything that's coming out of the left, quite frankly, in in the feminist in the female in the femisphere that is addressing these women specifically. They're giving lip service to things like intersectionality, but they're still focusing on things that primarily uh, affect a certain cohort of women, primarily over almost overly educated liberal arts women. Right? I don't see them actually practicing any type of intersectional thought other than like you know talking about I don't know hair issues or body image issues, and those things are cool and everything. But I don't understand why so much of like. F- Feminism is focused on whether or not you're fuckable to men or like whether or not you feel attractive. It's honestly feel it feels like a psyop to me. We constantly keep turning on ourselves. I don't know if it's like a byproduct of being a woman and like social tendencies that we might have as women. As you see in grade school, it's like we are the meanest to each other. And it's so counterproductive in the grand scheme of things. I just just wanted to add that in there. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine like these people who are professors, like these Ivy League institutions, go try to explain queer theory to like my 85 year old grandmother. She's going to be like, what, what kind of, what does your feminism have to do with me? And then if she's confused by it being like, oh my gosh, you're a hateful bigot and a racist. Yeah. Like that's not going to be winning the hearts and minds of the working class. Yeah, exactly. And like, there's nothing there for them. There's nothing. I'm, I'm so frustrated by the abandonment of feminism for these types of women. So that's that's my personal soapbox. That's something I will be pushing as a discussion repeatedly within this podcast, especially if we have on guests, just like getting an understanding of the issues that are affecting women in this cohort. And then what a practical kind of feminism looks like. A female forward world. Female forward world. So I think today we wanted to talk about in-group loyalty. Wasn't, wasn't that what we had originally planned? Yes. And I think that's a great transition. And I think that's like a good segue. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It is. 
And so let's talk a bit about how women are more likely to identify with the men within their own racial, political, and socioeconomic and religious class, and not so much relating to women in other groups. So one of the factors that often prevents women from varying backgrounds, from finding common ground, is loyalty to the men of their particular group. And we wanted to talk about why that is and what we can really realistically do about it. So just before we deep dive into it, let's maybe give it like a broad, some broad examples of where that takes place. Uh, White women who vote for Trump. That's the first thing that comes to mind. I'm like, why? Especially on social issues, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not a white woman, so I, I can't understand. <laughs> um, from what I understand, and again, so again, because I grew up like more or less purple state, a lot of why Trump became popular was, again, a working class ethos that developed within the Republican Party. Remember, Trump was never supposed to win, but there were so many people who were part of the conservative party who were pissed off at the Republican establishment who had been long since outsourcing their jobs overseas, ignoring this cohort of voters. So Trump represented an opportunity for them to quote unquote, get their jobs back and economic prosperity, the the MAGA ethos, the make America great again. And for a lot of women who are probably dependent on their husband's income, if you live in the middle of America or you live in the South, and it's been absolutely devastated by all of these big companies moving their manufacturing overseas, trying to, in some cases, hire undocumented workers to drive down wages. These women, they prioritize the idea that, okay, my husband will be able to get a secure job and we'll have some more economic stability, right? So when people say, well, those women didn't vote for Hillary because they must hate women or they're working against their interest or they're racist, I feel like that was not really a fair characterization of all the Trump voters. Like, were there racist over there? Hell yes. But I, that's not to me... There was a, a study that showed that, and I, I don't know the exact numbers, I wish I'd looked this up, but there's there were a significant amount of people who voted for Trump who also voted for Obama. Interesting, right? So what happened between the people who voted for Obama who then voted for Trump? Or they just look at that and they say, oh, it's because of misogyny. They just They just don't want to vote for a woman or something like that. And I don't know if I agree with that characterization. When people were talking about, well, why don't women like that want to vote for Hillary Clinton, the first uh, the first woman president? Because even though that's nice and symbolic, I don't know that there is a coherent platform coming from Hillary that, again, spoke to women and their immediate needs. You know, remember with Bill Clinton, a lot of these policies that were destroying the middle class, that destroyed the working class, that decimated these communities started under Reagan and then continued under the Clinton administration, like Bush, Clinton, all the way down. So there's a frustration there that I feel like was not addressed. And then people just being like, well, all these people are racist or all these people, all these women are misogynist and hate women and just like don't want to um, vote for Hillary. To me, honestly, we're not actually evaluating Hillary as a candidate and why women of this cohort may or may not want to vote for I think you, you put it great, especially when you mentioned that these policies started during the Reagan era and brought down. But something that I noticed, and this is, again, anecdotally, but I, I lived in the South, deep, deep South, where everything was largely Trump 2016, Trump 2020, then not. It was something you didn't say out loud that you didn't support Trump or like you weren't even supposed to criticize Trump. The number one sentiment that I got was people did not 
like Hillary. And there was also a large number of people, actually women that I know, again, all anecdotal, that voted for Obama, but didn't vote for Hillary and actually voted for Trump because they felt let down by Obama. And it's not to say people didn't feel let down by Trump, but people felt let down by Obama. I mean, think about what Obama's um, platform was. His entire campaign was hope, right? It was essentially make America great again, written in blue. It was just hope. And it was this hope that America could be better. We could recover from all of the follies of the Bush era and we would be something new, great and different and better and just absolutely amazing. And he's black. So people were like, maybe this guy is different enough to change the course of where American history is going. And the reality of it is like things didn't change too much. We didn't leave Afghanistan like people were hoping. Um, In fact, the footprint of Afghanistan got bigger. The economy didn't really change for the better for women or my um, people of color. So... People just felt like, okay, if Obama isn't it, is it Trump? Because Hillary is the establishment. She is a remnant of Clinton-Reagan-era establishment politics. Obama was something different and Trump was something different. So that's kind of like the underlying sentiment that people had when it came to looking at Trump versus Hillary. And the reason why it's important to maybe bring this up is because you know, within the context of our larger point about why sometimes women seemingly vote against their own interests as women. And that's that's how leftist media painted it when it came to watching how many, quote unquote, white women voted for Trump. It's like, oh, these women are, uh, they want um, women back in the kitchen. And it's, it, I feel like they didn't really understand the pressures that some of these women were under and why that, you know, again, like you said, Trump might have appealed to them more so than Hillary. And then also the like late stage attempt to repaint Hillary as a feminist icon when she spent 20 years, if not longer, covering up for her husband's sex crimes, if not outright antagonizing the women who came forward with sexual harassment and outright rape from Bill Clinton. And I'm not just talking about like Monica Lewinsky, who by all accounts says it was voluntary, even though that power dynamic is insane between a 20 something year old intern and a, and a middle-aged president, obviously. But even before that, people like Juanita Broderick, like it was very strange to like say, if you didn't support Hillary as the first female candidate, when she spent a lot of her career absolutely crushing <laughs> dissenting opinions that were coming from women and also looking other way at, at her husband's behavior and then saying, well, you can't judge Hillary for Bill's behavior. And I'm like, we don't have to judge her for Bill's behavior. We can judge her based on her behavior. Right. And then saying, if you don't support Hillary in particular, you must hate women. I'm like, Hillary was very problematic, even for a feminist candidate, even for leftists. Right. And there's also the, like the history of dog whistle racism, like the crime bill and her calling people super predators and et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's re- it's good to bring up why women, quote unquote, might seemingly vote against their own in- interest and prioritize in group uh, certain types of politics over being female, because that's how you actually understand how to appeal to these women to focus on the types of quote unquote feminist issues that would cause them to come over to your platform. But I don't feel like the left does any of that. They never try to talk to women in that respect. I don't think either party talks to women though. Yeah. I don't think the right does either. I mean, obviously we've, it's a whole discussion, but yeah. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say obviously, (laughs) but like women are not a monolith, right? I do just want to say that I think Hillary, the, the a part of the reason why people didn't like Hillary, yeah, there, there's all the stuff that you mentioned, Roe, but that's not to say she didn't experience misogyny. Like, there's definitely... And the other thing, you, you know, some people will bring up the whole both sides thing. I mean, she's not a perfect candidate, but to me, Trump was disastrous. And so 
even if she has certain flaws or, you know, even if Trump has certain things that the working class might identify with and so on with him over Hillary, um, that's not to say that these candidates are equally bad or, (laughs) you know, so I do just want to point out that also she did experience a lot of, or there was a lot of misogyny going around, around at the time during the election, because, you know, especially with like, oh, Hillary's just not likable. Women in leadership often experience, you know, you have to be likable, but if you're too likable, then, you know, you're social climber or a tryhard or wishy-washy, or you're not, you know, you're too weak or whatever, if you're likable, you know, so a lot, a lot of women, as they climb into the highest echelons of leadership, do often come up with these challenges of like, how do I be a strong leader? But also, how do I, you know, it's hard to be both a strong leader and also likable. And that's just a pressure that men don't really experience. Like a guy could be a total asshole and people will still vote for him for some reason. Like he can grab women by the pussy and people will be like, that's fine. But I do just want to say that with regards to Rose's comments about the working class, I don't think that the arguments... Like, it bothers me when the left will say, oh, anyone who voted for Trump is like a racist or they hate women or they're stupid or whatever. Because here's the thing, even if it is true, even if they are misogynistic, even if they are racist, I don't think that those accusations are helpful. I don't think they're persuasive. And to me, the goal is to try to win more working class people. What strikes me when I talk to normie conservative guys is that there's a certain way of talking to them where they low-key become comrades and they don't even realize it. Keep in mind that these are the same demographic of people 40 years ago would have been voting for labor parties and would have been involved in union politics and so on. And so I'm still the optimist. I still think that that demographic of people can still be won over by progressive policies. To broaden this discussion to women of different types of ethnic and religious groups, Um, I think this is where the concept of intersectionality actually comes to play. And I know intersectionality is quickly becoming a played out term among feminism because it's so often used as, again, like a buzzword. Or it's just used for oppression Olympics for the shifting identities of already privileged liberal people. (laughs) Like, very true. You know, uh, intersectionality is supposed to be about race. It's supposed to be about socioeconomic income levels. It's not about whether you're non-binary. <laughs> Anyways. Right. It's supposed to show, show how you can have competing types. You can have competing and sometimes contradictory types of oppression or like multifaceted issues or that. Um, but yeah, it has become this idea that like, oh, certain types of people are more oppressed than others or like, yeah, trying to virtue signal about who's, who's the most oppressed rather than understanding the complexity of how certain types of oppression can manifest itself. Obviously, the largest factors in oppression are often race, class and uh, sex, right? So when we're talking about intersectionality, you have to understand that sometimes women have to vote against their interest as a sex because they are forced to choose to support certain types of in-group politics, right? This does happen with other types of ethnic groups. In addition to white women, like we just went over. I think it comes from a weird pick-me psychology of, quote, protecting our men, which is something that, you know, just touching on the red pill, my, my former, I want to highlight former red pill woman experience. I think that was brought attention to, but this idea that we should protect our men, right? Yeah, white white supremacist pygmies do that same shit. White men are endangered. They're only 4% of the population, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, bitch, they're the most dominant demographic. White men are the most dominant demographic of the most dominant species on earth. They don't need you to protect them. Okay, like they're 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 going to be fine. 
they'll make it out of prison. They'll come back out. It's okay. But like, I think pri- primarily in the minority, like immigrant and in immigrant communities, especially like my ethnicity, we, we have a problem with our boys, our men, our boys doing things that are, you know, they're perpetuating violence against women in our own communities. And yet we raise money to get these men out of jail and post bail for them as soon as we can to protect our boys. And I, I think that drive comes from this like place of like, they're trying to kill our men. They're trying to eradicate our men. And it's not unique to the white supremacy pick but I think it is a inherently a, a pick me tendency to protect the very thing that's a threat to you because you see this man that looks like you as better than the man that doesn't look like you. But really, they're men, dude. You should be looking out for the women that look like you in your own community or across across the aisle everywhere. Point blank, racism is honestly like the biggest pick-me strategy because <laughs> if you weren't racist... Here, okay, let me... So I don't know... So I don't want to take credit for this idea because I know I read this somewhere, but I do not know who authored it. Um, I mean, there's definitely like this sense that racism mostly benefits men, right? Because most prejudice. Yeah. Most prejudice does because as, as women, as women, most of the time you can be absorbed into quote unquote, another patriarchy. Like racism is a, is a something that's sort of intersectional with patriarchy because the idea is to create like a racial hierarchy, maintain in-group loyalty so that men can secure a a loyal cohort of women. But at the same time, those men still fuck other women right of outside of their race or religion or whatever they'll talk about they'll they'll basically it's almost like a dual sexual strategy right where they bully women of their own race to be like pure and chaste and loyal to them while they fuck all the other women of other races they possibly can right it manifests itself as a madonna whore complex too right it justifies their sexual exploitation of women of other races as well so they can say the women of my race are like these pure virginal amazing women and we have to protect them they need to be virginal i can secure my paternity that way and then the women over there well they deserve to be uh, sexualized made into sex objects etc right and that's so often happened i mean that's been going on with white men towards women of color since forever right so meaning like white men are sometimes pedestalized and held up as standards of purity and virginity and then black women latino women native women they're lascivious they're sexually promiscuous etc cetera, etc cetera, and that's a justification for sexual expectation of women of these groups right so it's a very frustrating thing to see women perpetuate this kind of racism because i'm like these motherfuckers are not loyal to you let's keep it clear yeah that's the other thing that frustrates me so much about white supremacist pick is because they are so loyal to white men and they identify so closely with white men and want to protect white men. And I'm like, bitch, white men do not feel the same about you. They don't. They will not be loyal to you. They do not want to protect you. Like, I I don't understand how a woman who be like uncomfortable standing next to a black man, I'm like, sis, you can go ahead and be afraid of all men. Okay. Because white men, I've been choked out by a white guy. In fact, looking back, like the majority of violence that I've experienced at the hands of men were white men. And in fact, statistically speaking, majority of women are most likely to experience abuse and rape by a man of the same race. And so you shouldn't be trying to protect your own men. And you should just straight up like try to find the best situation for yourself, no matter 
what race he is. Because in, in a patriarchal society or even actually even a free society, it totally benefits women to just only deal with the men who are the best fit for her, the one, the men who are going to treat her the best. The reason why men and men know this, which is why I think they bully and fear monger or call them race traitors. Yeah. Race traitors. Yeah. I've been told that I'm a race traitor because I feel more comfortable around black women than white men. And I'm like, duh. I've been called a race traitor so many times and it's just, it's obscene. But it just, it makes zero sense to be loyal to men, period. Because Of any race. Of any race, because they don't feel that way about women. So racism is primarily a... a it's a one-sided loyalty. It's pointless. And the more we eradicate patriarchy, the less the racial loyalty is necessary. And so I think on some level, they know that. That's why they're, they have this, like, they try to stoke these, like, racial anxiety flames, right? Exactly, yeah. They're imprisoning our men. They're doing all of that. And it's just, like, a lot of these men that are, quote, being imprisoned or being targeted by the police system, not saying that it's correct, but do have domestic violence more often than not in their histories. And on the flip side, these police that are committing all these crimes against the populace have domestic violence. So it's it goes both ways. These men are not, neither are on our side. And that's what I'm trying to get across is I, as a conservative woman, don't represent that side. I represent women that are trying to change the world. And we need to come together, honestly. To expand this criticism even further, there was some discussion during the Afghanistan withdrawal that a lot of women were, were little bit concerned that they were bringing men or prioritizing men over the women and children who were left in Afghanistan and that a lot of these men had openly misogynist patriarchal sexist values. I wonder how many of those guys are going to take the visa, go to the states and like leave their wife and kids behind because men are scumbags. So I think that that's going to happen. So that was the perception. That was the point I actually wanted to make was that when the planes were taking off and it, all you saw were these Afghan men like running aside the plane, like trying to get in the plane, the optics of that were very bad because it did seem like, oh, so y'all are just going to abandon your wife and kids here. And that's, I mean, and to be blunt, like a lot of the men who joined the Taliban and who joined ISIS abandoned their wife and kids. Or turned around and oppressed them. Or oppressed them, right? Like they either just straight up were like, I'm going to go join the Taliban and like, I don't know, figure it out. And then you create a humanitarian (laughs) crisis because there's all these women and children who don't have education. They have no means to support themselves. They're flooding into other countries because there's just, there's no way for them to live in their current country. So watching these guys like try to escape a country that they honestly should have stayed and been responsible for. The optics of that were very bad. And it did kind of seem like, wow, so in the worst possible moment, this is what you can expect men to do, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's par for the course. Who's surprised? There was actually a study, about, and we'll put the link to the study below. There was a study about shipwrecks. And basically the study looked at different shipwrecks that had at least some women, because most, keep in mind, most shipwrecks, there's no or very few women. But they looked at, passenger shipwrecks that had some women on it and how many women survived. And in a, something like half of them or a third of them, a very large proportion of them, zero women survived, even though there were women on the ship. Like people talk about the Titanic and the idea of like women and children first. In these types of crises, you have to understand that men will just reflexively protect themselves. And since they're bigger and they're stronger and like larger than us, straight up, like on the Titanic, the captain had to basically threaten men with a gun to let the women and children go first. Like the Titanic women and children first thing, that was the exception, not the rule. In the majority of shipwreck cases, the men push the women aside and save their own fucking skin. So you got to understand that men are fundamentally cowardly and will choose to prioritize themselves on the individual level. And they'll leave the women and kids behind 
escape, go make a life in another country. That's why the optics of Afghanistan was bad, because you just knew a lot. A lot of these guys are just going to abandon their wife and kids and start a new life in America. So it's always frustrating when you see women like really, 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 (laughs) I want to say like take bullets for men or try to put themselves like as political shields for men, because you just very often do not see the opposite. Don't be a martyr. A lot of them are martyring themselves and being like political jihadis. and, And it's just it's not necessary. Like female suicide bombers? Essentially. But like how many of them are forced? to be suicide bombers though a lot of them opt in and they are proud oh my god let's not get into radical pick right now we're talking isis brides like jihadi pick yes oh they god. are i mean take white supremacy pick and then like add like martyrdom to it and religious like oh my god religious fervor yes yes and the scariest ones are what is called the reverts but they can a different topic we'll get into it later <laughs> while we were talking about in-group loyalty it is relevant it is relevant like you know the shamima Begum, she apparently changed her mind on isis and wants to come back but she left the uk at the age of i think 15 or 16 to become an isis bride and was like hardcore pro isis i just don't get that clown behavior is why <laughs> clown behavior i don't get i cannot understand being such a pick me that you join a terrorist organization so a lot of the okay so consider radicalization the same as like gang affiliation and how kids wind up joining gangs is the same reason a lot of people join ISIS. It's it's sexy, it's different, and it's the like ultimate rebellion against your like typical and they tend to be European for the most part, Canadian and then the US. This is the new punk rock and drugs. (laughs) Joining ISIS is how you rebel against your parents. It is. (laughs) And that was the conversations that a lot of my partners downrange had with these ISIS brides when they like had, I mean, I can't get into it. So there's a lot of like operational security involved, but I remember one of my friends told me, he said, this woman looked me square in the eyes and said, oh, I came here to piss my dad off and marry a Muslim and be an ISIS bride and have ISIS babies. She said caliphate. That, that's the word that she used. Oh my God. She was German. Was she raised Muslim or was she white? No, just German chick from like a random village. Her dad's looking for her. Germany is one of the richest countries in the world. I feel like when people have so much privilege, it's like they just create problems for themselves. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it goes it goes across the board, though, for these like Western girls. And they tend to be very young. These pick are like 15 years old to 18. And they meet these guys online and they're like, oh, my God, my dad won't let me paint my nails. Can I like he was like, I'll marry you and I'll give you the world. And she's like, OK, I'll hop on a plane and wind up in like Jordan. And then he goes and gets her and now she's an ISIS bride and they have such severe Stockholm syndrome that they are literally willing to blow up themselves, their children and die for this guy they met on like forums. It is the saddest, most mind boggling thing ever. Yeah, it's always um, it's always sad to see women. I mean, I guess I guess a an ISIS, a guy in ISIS is like the ultimate bad boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> ISIS terrorist, the ultimate bad boy. Gang, gang. <laughs> you know, forget Crips. It's like forget Crips, Bloods. Yeah, I'm going ISIS, baby. Oh my god. I'm not like other girls. I'm an ISIS. <laughs> you don't rebel against your patriarchal father by joining another patriarchy. By joining a worse patriarchy. A worse patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a weird. It seems just like such a weird Im- 
instinct that sometimes women have who grow up in these oppressive uh, male dominated environments. They just join, they go join another one, right? It's like, um, it's like how they used to call them PKs, preachers kids and how sometimes like those girls would be like the wildest sexually and like let men do like the most degrading things to them. Uh, sad. I had no idea. God. Yeah. It's like they don't, they don't ever parse out of a path to themselves. They go from one extreme influence, male influence to another extreme male influence. It's, it's reactionary. Like I was listening to a podcast episode where there's this sex worker who was like, yeah, I was raised evangelical and super Christian. And as soon as I turned 18, I rebelled against my parents by getting OnlyFans. And then, <laughs> and I'm just like, sis, why? <laughs> this is how men keep winning on both sides, right? Because there's a reactionary. I'm going to join the other team's patriarchy. I'm going to join the other team's patriarchy. Fuck you. You know, like, like, hey, how about we explore what's out there here in a safe podcast and then, you know, choose accordingly. Choose accordingly, the best course of action. So yeah, instead of choosing different teams patriarchy, I choose different team women. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think that sums up our episode. So what would you say our key takeaways are? So instead of team blue or team red, let's focus on team woman. Team female. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I think that's a pretty good wrap up. Let's take, that's our key takeaways. What's our strategies here? Female first, obviously. So strategies understand the motivations that are underlying these sorts of political discussions or understand the competing motivations that underlie these sorts of political allegiances and understand how they often circle back in the end to being beneficial to men primarily. The strategy here is, ladies, we all need to be honest with ourselves about what are the things that matter to us as female people, and then try to find coalitions with one another to put our needs first or to make our desires happen. Well said. And that's our first show. You can follow us on Twitter at Female Political, as well as our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Female Political Strategy. Thanks for listening, Team Female, and see you next week. Um.